that, that we can look at. So, <laughs> um, before we jump into this passage, and we'll uh, look at the spirit of the entire passage and also give particular attention to the opening verse of chapter 5 of Galatians, I would like to make one announcement that was not referenced uh, earlier. Um, only because it's a change in schedule and uh, might affect a few of you here. For those of you who have attended or have been interested in the Wednesday night class that has to do with spiritual vitality, um, this Wednesday, because of the 4th of July holiday, we will not be meeting, but we will pick up on the 10th and 17th. So there are two weeks left. If you've not attended, but this has intrigued you for some time, this will be a great two weeks to come. Um, when you come, you probably will notice that you've missed a couple things, but they are in some ways kind of self-contained, and it would be a great time to jump in for a two-week mini-class in the midst of a larger class. So if you would like to come, you certainly are invited. I also need to get my bearings here. I know you have your own patterns, but visually there are also patterns, and um, when the Heffernans and Warners sit in the wrong place. I don't, it, I don't know whether to turn sideways or... So I'm just getting my bearings straight and... Okay, even AJ's in the wrong spot. What is happening this morning? This is... Okay. <laughs> um, I would like to invite you, if I could, um, into a courtroom scene. I, I'd like you, if you could, for a few moments, to imagine yourself, um, you're part of the jury, the last day of a long trial that's lasted, let's say, a week. And so you have set aside this time, of course, your employer has allowed you to take it off. If you work, if you don't work, you've had to make arrangements at home for the things that needed to be taken care of while you served in this fashion. And so, in the morning, on what you believe will likely be the last day of the trial itself, having no, long, no idea how long the deliberations will be, you have uh, made your way to the large courthouse building. You've found parking, you've walked the sidewalks. You notice that the streets are busy with other pedestrians, none of whom you know feels like being alone in a crowd. You make your way into the lobby that the first time you walked in there felt incredibly sterile. It felt stark. Somehow, after numerous days having served in this fashion, you've kind of gotten accustomed to it, didn't give it much thought. But you've got to go through the metal detector and take all of the things that you're carrying and put them on the conveyor belt. A testament to days gone by where certain circumstances that uh, have created chaos in previous courtrooms has led to the necessity of this endeavor itself, an endeavor to try and protect the citizens of the state, and so you willingly do all the things to walk through and have the thing buzz with the green light and wait until an officer says that it's okay for you to go and pick up your things and reconfigure yourself and try and get back in the order you were before you went through that process. You make your way down to the elevators, needing to find the floor that this trial has been taking place on all of this time. And as often happens, you step into an elevator and there are numerous other people that are waiting. 
and a few who were already on the elevator before it came to your floor, and you find a space that is awkward, but it's the best space in the elevator, and then notice that there are another half a dozen people coming on, and your eyes do a quick glance and notice some others who are wearing the same little name badge that you have, and you know that they're in the same boat that you are in, maybe on a different floor with a different trial, but doing the same kinds of things. You also notice somebody else who walks in well-dressed. She is pulling behind her a roll cart that has two portable file cases filled with paperwork. And the thought crosses your mind. Does she really need all of that today? And come on, did she really read every one of those pieces, or is she bringing them for reading material during the trial today? Inwardly, you kind of shrug, realizing that it is too awkward to ask any questions or to speak up in an elevator, so you smile, keep your mouth shut, and stare at the floor numbers, hoping that they will pass more quickly till finally comes to your floor and you get out. Make your way from the elevator down to the particular room that you're in. Off to the left, you see the windows that look out over the cityscape. You see beneath you quite a few floors, the people of the city busy going about their work, carrying on the business that has to be done. Wondering yourself, I wonder how things are going without me having been present this last week. The people I work with or interact with. Again, realizing that this is your work for this week, you make your way down to the entrance and know that you have to wait until the bailiff calls you in and so you find a place to sit. Having made acquaintance with a few people, you nod, say hi, and wait until the bailiff walks out, makes a few announcements that you've heard before, and then invites you, the jury, to come in. You walk through the two sets of doors, and as you enter in, you notice to your right and to your left these open pews where others can sit who aren't part of the gallop gallery, who aren't part of the jury, this is called the gallery, and it just crosses your mind, wow, it just kind of reminds me of old churches, hmm, interesting, you walk up a little bit further and there stand right in front of you the attorneys who are both representing clients and representing the state, and they are all standing and looking right at you, as are the two defendants who are off to one side, respectful of you, the jury, as you enter, and you make your way in, turn to the left, and go up into the jury box and find your seat. Once again, you look around the room. You notice where the court officers are standing, where they're looking, what they're doing, noticing their uniform. You see the court recorder in her place, and you try to remind yourself not to be distracted by what she does because it's so unusual. There's no other place where this happens, where somebody sits at a machine that doesn't look like any other machine you've ever seen and moves her fingers and somehow records every word that's said in this courtroom. 
It's an interesting occupation. You wonder in this day and age of technology why there isn't just a recording device with some kind of Google translator that translates it in so that everybody can pay attention and not be distracted by what it is that this person does. You notice who's in the gallery. And when you look to the gallery, you recognize some faces of people who have shown up before. You wonder if some of them are family members or someone else whose interest in this case is beyond your knowledge. And then you see some people you haven't seen before. Could be here on a school project. They could be here because they're really just interested in the verdict and nothing else. And then you hear the statement, all rise. And the judge enters into the room. As she sits down, she makes the statement that everyone else can be seated as well. You notice once again the seal of the state that's right above where she is seated, the lighting of the room, and her words break the silence with a few instructions. She announces that we've come to the end of presentation of evidence and arguments. It is now time for closing statements. And she looks to the prosecutor and says to the prosecutor, are you ready with your closing arguments? He nods in reply and then says, the judge, you can begin. He grabs, as every attorney has, his yellow pad, makes a few references to the notes that he has, satisfied that he has what he needs to begin, he looks right at the jury, having said, thank you, Your Honor. And to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I am here this morning not to review all of the evidence that has been presented. You've heard it. Those two who stand trial for the Breaking of the laws that we have agreed collectively as a society shouldn't be broken. Need this morning to be found guilty of these charges and having been found guilty to be given their appropriate punishment. And I want to say how important it is that we abide by the law in all of this. Without the law there is chaos. We move toward anarchy. It is imperative that the boundaries that we have established are boundaries that we keep. It provides for us a safe and secure society. It provides for us an understanding not only of how we are supposed to operate, but a sense of certainty of the outcomes that will result from operating in such a fashion. You've heard the evidence. I I'm convinced that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you know that they are in violation of our laws. And because of that, I'm convinced that I don't need to go over every shred of detail, every witness that has taken the stand, every statement that has been made, but simply to remind you of your duty to uphold these things and to do what is 
just, what is right. I will remind you, however, of the things for which they have been accused. The charges that have been brought against them. And they are many. They include sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. They include idolatry and witchcraft. That list right there is large enough, but let me add the other charges that have been included in this particular case. It includes hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, it includes factions, envy, dissensions. It includes drunkenness, orgies, and other things we haven't even chosen to include on the list. But rest assured, guilty of these others, we could list a lot more things of which they are without a doubt guilty. And I will add that if somewhere in this you think that they are not guilty of some of these behaviors, rest assured they've thought about them and considered them. Now I know that the defense is going to call us the thought police for even considering that. But I want to assure you that there isn't anything that could be further from the truth. It's not about being the thought police. And even in cases where somebody has not premeditated some of these actions, there is without a doubt a predisposition to these things. And if we don't begin to correct this kind of behavior, then what will happen when all of us give ourselves to this kind of behavior? I also want to point out that it really doesn't matter if you find them guilty on every count. Our law states that if they are guilty of just one of these things, then they are guilty of the whole law itself. All you need to find is that there is simply one count where they have violated what we have prescribed as appropriate behavior, their decision to not be drawn into conformity of what we believe is right for us, then they deserve the consequences of being a lawbreaker. I would like to borrow and paraphrase a statement of one of my predecessors. If the glove fits, you must convict. So make it happen this morning that you find them guilty and bring about the appropriate verdict that will result in their incarceration. Being in prison for what they've done until they can learn the appropriate discipline that brings about the appropriate behavior of which we all expect. Thank you. The 
prosecutor then makes his way back to his table, his chair. The judge looks up from the things that she has been paying attention to and glances across to the other table where we find seated as we sit in the jury box both the defendants and the one who is representing them, their counsel. And she says, Counselor, are you prepared for your closing arguments? The response is, I am, Your Honor. And so she says to him, well, please proceed. In a similar fashion, he acknowledges the judge, Your Honor, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you know that I have been retained as counsel for the two defendants, the ones whom I represent. But I do want you to know that there's a little bit of a distinction here, a distinction that you may not recognize in these moments. They've retained me not simply for these particular proceedings. They have retained me for all that they are doing, what they have embarked upon. I am with them regardless of the outcome of this trial because they've invited me to represent them, to be their advocate, to be their helper, to be their counsel and guide in all areas of their life. It just so happens that included among that is the opportunity to be here and represent them as their counsel in this particular proceeding. And so, please know that my participation here doesn't end at the end of this trial, but continues long after this. Secondly, I would like to say something that may shock you, and in so doing, you may wonder why the trial even continues, but I want to acknowledge that what the prosecution has said is actually quite true. My clients are guilty. They are guilty of the things for which they have been accused. And at the risk of being redundant, let me go through the list so you know exactly what it is that I'm saying. My clients, the two that sit here, they are guilty of sexual immorality, of impurity, of debauchery. They are guilty of idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, certainly. Discord, yes. Jealousy, without a doubt. Fits of rage, uh-huh. Selfish ambition, certainly. They are guilty of factions. They are guilty of envy, divisiveness. They are guilty of drunkenness, orgies, and other things that have not even been mentioned. Guilty, 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 guilty. I want to clarify, just like the prosecution has said, it may not be that they have exhibited every one of these behaviors, but they've considered these things in their hearts and minds. Absolutely. And I will also agree with the prosecution when the prosecution says that there must be consequences for the things that have happened. But let me point out some of the ways in which I disagree with the prosecution. The consequences, really, have already been woven into the behavior themselves. Both the inward heart attitude 
the mindset as well as the external behaviors, they carry with them their own incarceration, their own chains, their own imprisonment. You see, we talk over and over again about the chaos, the anarchy that will happen outwardly if we don't force the kind of discipline that needs to happen upon people who apparently don't have enough discipline to contain themselves. And I would contend to you that the outward battle is nothing compared to the inward battle that's going on inside of all of us. And until that, until that inward battle is addressed, the outward battles will continue to rage on. The wars will continue to grow. The conflict will continue to increase. We can't change that simply by good discipline or tightening the boundaries. It only comes with something that changes in the battle that's happening within each one of us. But the truth of the matter is, apart from any outward consequences that we might impose, there is a consequence that's written right into the behavior itself. It leads people to a place of isolation, distance, fracturedness. The kind of outward immorality leads to an inward barrenness. The kind of outward rage betrays an inward anger that's never been addressed or wrestled with. The jealousy, never having dealt with the inward longing for love and compassion from others and intimacy with someone else. Instead, the outward manifestations show themselves over and over again and our courtrooms are filled because we've not addressed the battle that rages within. So I would contend, ladies and gentlemen, that the two people I represent have already felt the depth of the consequences of their behavior. Their feelings of isolation, of loneliness, sense of chaos and abandonment, their sense of self-crushed by the ways in which their selfish ambition has caused them to crush others, left behind in the wake, broken relationships, hurt and pain that's a result of the behaviors and the spirit and attitude of which they have partaken and drunk deeply. So I would contend that we should pay attention to some of what the prosecution has said, but I would also contend that we miss the whole point if we listen to his arguments. His arguments not only of consequences, but his arguments of conformity. You see, it fascinates me how we are collectively drawn to this place of conformity you act so independent in all that you do. You feel like the world calls you to this, but so often the world is simply calling you to more and more and more and more conformity. You may not see it, may not always realize it, but your culture, your society beckons you over and over again. And the results you may not notice, but they're obvious. Between all who are seated here, all who are in the courtroom, what you use may be two different types of browsers for the entire population of the world. 
you have uh, one search engine that 98% of you use. You have appliances that are purchased really from probably only about four or five companies. You all take pride in banking at different institutions, but they're all part of one world bank with the same kinds of regulations and boundaries that are set for all of them. We are called not so much into being unique in your fashion or presentation. Oh, the advertisers think that they are getting this across to you when they present new ideas of fashion or possessions or material goods that you might purchase using opinion makers, but eventually the goal is that all of you would actually buy the exact same outfit or appliance or item. The goal is not so much to make you unique, it is instead to tempt you by your desire toward that uniqueness, but to move you in such a direction that everybody moves collectively in that direction. It's what your culture is built upon. Is it not amazing the creative diversity of the world in which we live that your creator may have made you so that you feel like you are as numerous as the sands on the seashore, but made you as unique as every snowflake is unique. You might look up to the skies and be reminded that you are as numerous as the, sky, as the stars in the sky, and yet as unique as every leaf has its own print, every flower its own design, and every one of you made so uniquely. The thing that unites you is the thing you don't often recognize, and that is what has been stamped on you, the image of your creator. That image, though stamped on you, does not call you to be alike with everyone else. It calls you to be the unique you you were designed to be. Not one who stands in conformity to everyone else who sits beside you, but one who who realizes that that unique you has been covered over by years of drawing you into sameness, drawing you into uniformity, drawing you in to a place where you've been lulled to sleep. The one who created you desires for you to be fully awake, for you to be fully engaged, to be fully you. It's tough when the battle rages on. A writer a long time ago wrote these words, that the very thing that I want to do, I don't end up doing. The things that I abhor that I don't want to do, I end up doing those. It feels ridiculous, but that which I long to do, I don't do. That which I don't want to do, I keep doing again and again. There is this battle that's raging inside of me. Who's going to free me from this raging battle? And that writer says, well, thanks be to God. It's through Jesus Christ, the Lord. I know I'm not supposed to bring faith into the legal system. It seems like such a violation of our Constitution. But I make no apologies for that. Because if you look, you'll be surprised at the ways in which so much of that is deeply applicable to the very issues that we're facing this morning as the two that I represent stand on trial. The battle that rages within, 
We think we can solve it by creating more boundaries, by simply lending ourselves toward greater discipline, by stepping into a place where I determine to do all of those right things. But the truth is, you and I know that that's not accurate. Greater discipline does nothing more than increase the raging battle within. Sheer determination simply leaves us in a place where those fits of rage come out at all the wrong times. Where the jealousy crops up when I least expected it, much less the person that I'm jealous about. It comes because I've not paid attention to the battle that is deep within. My colleague told a wonderful story years and years and years ago. The story goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds in a field a treasure. When that treasure is found, it's covered up briefly. And then the person goes and sells all that is had so that that field can be purchased. It is a treasure inside of each one of us. A treasure, that place where we've been stamped with God's image. A treasure that contains who we uniquely are. Treasured by us, we will come to the realization that it's worth selling everything. It's worth all of life to pursue that which is deep within God's unique imprint on you. I would contend for you this morning that my two clients in retaining me have decided to undergo that pursuit. That pursuit of freedom. That which calls them into a place where everything else, it seems to pale in comparison to living into all that is within that God has placed there. So the truth of the matter is it really doesn't determine their posture, what your verdict is. If you find them guilty and imprison them, it won't change them at all. They have found freedom. Freedom that is not bound by circumstances. It's not bound by what room they are in or how small that room is. It's not bound by your verdict because what they have within cannot be taken away. You know some of the stories of your history where that has been shown true over and over again. Prisoners of war, recent in your nation's past. We think of the gentleman who recently passed away, John McCain, and the story of his imprisonment. The one about who books and movies have been written, Louis Zamberini, and his spirit that could not be broken. You can talk about political prisoners that are part of your collective storyline. Nelson Mandela, imprisoned for political ideas. Martin Luther King, Jr. 
you can go to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in all of these storylines, you have over and over again that the circumstances did not determine the sense within that there was something greater, a freedom, a purpose that was not bound by circumstances or the chaos that surrounded them, but instead was linked to something eternal, something powerful, something that resonated with freedom that changed the battle within. You've memorialized it in your own mythology. You talk about it in A Beautiful Life, in Shawshank Redemption. The list goes on and on of the ways in which you create storylines that champion this very idea. The notion that it's possible to have something within that is so vibrant, so alive, as if you have tapped in to that which is divine and eternal. So I guess what I'm saying is this. These two have already determined their outcomes. I would contend that this trial is actually about you. That you are on trial this morning. Your decision to make. I referenced my colleague in the story of the treasure. I would also say that he quickly followed that by the story of the pearl of great price. There is a merchant who's in search of great pearls. And when that pearl is found, again, everything is sold because that pearl of great price is so valuable. I would like to say to you this morning that these two are pearls of great price and you are as well. It is the creator, the master, who is on search for those who are willing to tap into that which is inside that matches with not only the way in which you were created, but the creator who has the creator's imprints all over you. That the creator will do anything to produce in you the beauty and luster of the finest of all pearls. And all pearls do not look alike. Each one unique in its luster, in its size, in its character. And that's who you are. So this morning, I implore you, allow yourself to be scrutinized by the very questions that the prosecutor has raised and recognize that it is your place to answer the question about yourself. Because, as was said a long time ago, it is for freedom itself that you have been set free. That is God's gift and your treasure. And when you grab hold of it, you will find it not because of your discipline or your boundaries, but because of what is beginning to work inside of you. Peace, joy, love, forbearance or patience, gentleness, kindness, 
that there is a faithfulness that arises up within you, a self-control not built upon your own self, but upon the spirit that rests within you that is helping to redefine yourself. Out of those things that begin to well up inside, you find yourself coming to a place of grace. A place where love has transformed and where love begins to transform the circumstance in which you find yourself. And with that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the defense rests. Father in heaven, It is so easy for us, Lord, to sit in the seat of judgment, to offer a response of verdict, or, Lord, to cower under our own fears, the chaos in the world around us, the places where it feels like we've been abandoned the pain and hurt of aloneness, of fear, of anger. Lord, this morning, those places where our heart and our mind is gone, those places where our behaviors have taken us, oh Lord, the ways in which those are simply outgrowths of not paying attention to what you have placed within us and your willingness to dwell within. It's not that our longing for intimacy or relationship is wrong, Lord. It's when we don't give attention where those things would take us if we would simply surrender to you. And it comes out in horrible ways. When our fear, our fear of being alone, our fear of our circumstances, our fear of the unknown, leads us to places where we don't know how to do that and we stuff it away, Lord, and it comes out in rage, comes out in jealousy, comes out in envy. Oh, Lord, this morning we are guilty. Guilty, guilty, guilty. But we need so much more than forgiveness. Lord, please do not stop there. We need transformation. We need courage to go to those places in our heart that move us past simply receiving forgiveness to the place where grace begins to change our heart, leads us to a place where the rocky soil begins to be turned over, where the thorns begin to be pruned away, where the the mud, the clay, somehow, Lord, the nutrients you provide, it begins to produce good soil Lord, let this be our work this morning. Surrender to you. Come and dwell within. Be our advocate. Be our helper. Be our guide. Be our counsel. We are retaining you not for this trial. We are retaining you for this life and for all of eternity. To that end, Lord, we simply say,
Thank you. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing in response this morning, and we kind of got through all the moody songs at the beginning, and we're just kind of left with the upbeat one. But I wanted to intro and say it's, it's incredibly important and intentional. Dee and I were in cahoots on this early in the week. The, uh, the lyrics of this song are so important in response to this, um, to this message that we've heard. So I invite you all to stand and sing with us. We're going to sing Stir in Me, and then we'll reach back in the set a little bit to finish with. Uh, it is well with my soul again. So sing with us. Stir in me a fire that the world cannot explain. I come to worship you. Stir in me a passion that my heart cannot contain I come to worship you So hold me, break me, mold me And make me more and more like you I come to worship to love you, fear you, and draw ever near you as I worship you. I come to worship you. Stir in me. Stir in me the fire that the world cannot explain I come to worship you with our lives God stir in me a passion that my heart cannot contain I come to worship you so hold me Break me, mold me, and make me more and more like you. I come to worship you, to love you, fear you, draw ever near you as I worship you. I come to worship you. Amen. Sing my sin, O the bliss of us. My sin, O the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the It's nailed to the cross 